Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Tom Fox. Today, Matt and I take a deep dive into a recent speech by Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco delivered at the SCCE 2023 Compliance and Ethics Institute. In this speech, she detailed a new safe harbor in mergers and acquisitions under the FCPA and a broader set of rules and regulations and laws, which are all enforced by the Department of Justice. This was a very interesting speech. It expanded upon a very old opinion release, an opinion release called 0802, commonly known as the Halliburton Opinion Release, as well as some enforcement actions from the early 2010s. I know you'll enjoy this episode. If you've not done so, I hope you will leave us a review and subscribe to Compliance Into the Weeds. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for another episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. Welcome, Matt. Sure. Matt, we had a major announcement from DAG, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, last week at the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics, uh, Compliance Ethics Institute, I think, CEI. Uh, yep. You were there. Uh, did you get to hear the speech? I did. Uh, not there in person, but uh, Deputy AG Monaco did deliver a good 20 minutes on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, piped in over Zoom, uh, took a good TCE, but shuffled all around. Well, you've uh, already blogged about one part of her speech, which was the compli- you've entitled Justice Department Cuts Compliance Break for M&A. So why don't you tell us about that part of the speech? Well, I think that is uh, what compliance expected for a while now. This is the rumor this was in the works. Uh, this is another olive branch that the Justice Department is extending over compliance departments that if you have an acquisition, what do you do? Find issues in that acquisition of compliance violation. Of six, six violations from the date deal is uh, the, then the department prosecute, as they like to say, uh, to make, make that notification and then a year for the closing date, all of that. But assuming that you meet those two deadlines, then yes, uh, it is yet another will not trust your company for the addition. You, <clears throat> you still have it all up, still a few other details there, but Yet again, we see the department trying to encourage corporate compliance, encouraging cooperation with the department, covering up compliance violations you find. So, just in the spring announcements, 
Well, Matt, uh, when I initially heard uh, about the speech before I had the opportunity to read it or your blog post on it, uh, my first thought was no big deal or why is this a big deal? This has been the rule since 2008. But when I sat down and read the speech, she actually put some very firm guardrails around this and I think really articulated what the DOJ expects and how you can garner the credit. And when I say 2008, that was because there was a opinion release commonly known as the Halliburton opinion release where Halliburton was able to get a safe Harbor for an acquisition they were considering at the time. It was very aggressive uh, timelines and many compliance professionals struggled with that. Uh, subsequent to the Halliburton opinion release, we had some enforcement actions uh, in the first part of the second decade of this year, uh, this century, which articulated uh, some additional guidelines, timelines of 18 months, and at one point, as soon as is practicable uh, for uh, a potential safe harbor. But once again, those were enforcement actions. But here we had uh, Lisa Monaco really giving some very clear guidelines. Six months after closing, you have to disclose. One year after closing, you have to have completed your remediation. And she made it not just in the FCPA world, but department-wide. So that may be uh, as significant as any other part of it, but she really created a clear safe harbor for companies, and I hope that they will uh, take note of the clarity of this and respond to it. Uh, she did. And in fact, Tom, thank you for mentioning the opinion release from 2008 about Halliburton, because uh, Monaco did talk about that. And she basically said, we are taking the concepts within that press release and expanding them into full policy for the entire department. Um, but what I thought also was interesting is that uh, there are a few other sweeteners here that let this policy fit very well with Deputy Monaco's broader approach to FCPA enforcement and corporate compliance generally. So you might remember about 18 months ago, she said that they will take a very stern line towards recidivist behavior. Well, these incidents that happen at the acquisition target will not count as recidivist behavior or incidents of recidivist behavior. So if you have an issue at this acquisition and then three or four years later, you have a very different compliance failure at the enterprise, and you're wondering, oh, geez, is this going to mean that they count me as recidivist because I'm back again? No, it will not. Um, also, we have a lot of talk about what would you do with a violation that involves aggravating factors. Um, and M Monaco and others at the department have said, if your case does include aggravating factors, then maybe, no, we won't presumptively decline. Maybe we will still bring charges against you if there is you know, an obscene amount of profit or if senior executives are involved or various other factors. Well, if there are aggravating factors here at the acquiring or at the acquisition target, that will not count against you, the company. You are not going to be responsible for their aggravating factors. <clears throat> so there in various ways, you can see that they have tried to fit this new policy in to the broader context of what they're trying to do here. I also I think that it, there's certainly a clear logic to these deadlines, the six months, the 12 months, being tied to the closing date. The logic being that if you want more time to figure out what to do, you, senior management, should involve the compliance officer much earlier in the acquisition process and ideally before the deal is closed. 
So some acquisitions, you're, you know, you're in due diligence for a year. And if you involve compliance from the very first, that would give you as much as 18 months to figure out what are we going to do with this violation at the target? How are we going to disclose it? What are we going to say? But if the deal closes and nobody ever brought compliance into it and they say on day one after the close, have added compliance, now you can clean up all the mess, you won't have much time. You'll only have the six months. So <clears throat> there is certainly that pressure here, subtle or maybe not so subtle, uh, but you know, clear pressure to have management teams get compliance involved in pre-acquisition due diligence as soon as possible. And that's sharp. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to to maybe lay a little the context of that Halliburton opinion release because I, uh, I'd like to see how it informs this uh, new program. The Halliburton opinion release in that in that case Halliburton was prohibited by an, a law in the country of the target they were uh, trying to acquire from reviewing more than 25 contracts and they were very concerned about the companies the acquire acquiring targets agent agents or third-party agents. And so they came up with a incredibly aggressive 30, 60, 90-day review and disclosure to the Department of Justice. So 30 days for high risk, 60 days for medium risk, 90 days for low risk agents. And the uh, I had the opportunity to visit with uh, Chuck DeRoss, then head of the FCPA unit at the time. And he said that one of the reasons for the aggressive time frame was that no pre-acquisition due diligence had been done. Uh, I thought Dag Monaco in her speech made clear that it's six months from date of closing, but it doesn't matter when you start. You can do it pre-acquisition or post-acquisition. But as you just noted, if you start post-acquisition to perform due diligence on not an acquired entity, but now you, as in if they continue to bribe, pay bribes and engage in corruption, that's no longer them. It's you. That's an incredibly aggressive time frame. And your point about having compliance in the pre-acquisition phase is absolutely, in my mind, spot on. Because to get this done, get the information and self-disclose, even six months is still a very aggressive time frame. If you are in have an international acquisition and you have to uh, literally travel across the world to perform the due diligence you have not done pre-acquisition. And, you know, Tom, I would just pick up one more point on this. For compliance officers themselves, you know, this is going to be a big tell for your management team about how serious they are about your place on the org chart. If they are not involving you in pre-acquisition due diligence, I could see unscrupulous management teams saying, well, screw it, we're just going to close this deal and then we'll worry about the due diligence later. And then they're going to look to you, the compliance officer, to clean this up within six months. And if you don't find something within six months and you blow this window for a declination, could that management team then turn around and blame you and make you the scapegoat? Now, that's not fair. That's not right. But I don't doubt that at least some management teams would probably try to do it. So there is certainly going to be a big incentive for compliance officers to, as tactfully as possible and as forcefully as necessary, basically force your way into pre-acquisition due diligence, because otherwise... You could be set up to, you know, have the noose around your own neck here if everything goes sideways after the close. And I would just caution people to think about that long and hard. Well, I might take a little different spin on that, Matt, because I think if uh, a company did find themselves in that situation and management did engage in that, 
type of behavior and the companies in front of the Department of Justice, management would look extraordinarily poorly if they have uh, strung up their CCO, either literally or figuratively, and that a CCO, uh, excuse me, a former CCO who is interviewed by the Department of Justice would probably say, they didn't let me do anything pre-acquisition. And in fact, they told me I couldn't, and they didn't give me the resources to do it post-acquisition. So um, perhaps they wouldn't have the CCO walk the plank. They might try and point a finger in that direction. I'm not sure the DOJ would be having much of that if a CCO tried to do pre-acquisition due diligence and was not either couldn't or wouldn't. Oh, I think the Justice Department would look very unfavorably on that sort of scenario I sketched out. Then again, even under the best case scenario where a CCO is separates from the company and becomes a whistleblower hoping for a big payout at the end, okay, that's four or five years down the road. You might not get anything. And meanwhile, you might get blackballed by your former employer. Like there are personal consequences here that could get very messy. And I would just encourage compliance officers to Think long and hard about that. If you can't get involved in pre-acquisition, that's a big, big red flag for your personal career security. And, um, you know, just beware of the ways that this could go south and who could be pointing at whom at the end of it all. Let me see if we can explore a little bit the broader uh, uh, nature of how this policy will apply because she made it clear this is not limited to the fraud section. It's not limited to the FCPA unit. It is DOJ wide. And I guess what intrigued me about that was, as our friend Michael Volkoff would say, the antitrust division, or he would say the division has typically had a free pass for the first entity that comes in, in any sort of price fixing. Well, now say acquiring company determines that acquired company was engaged in antitrust behavior. Uh, do they still get that free pass? Uh, now under this policy, will, is the default position of the DOJ antitrust division going to be a declination or any other type of corporate misconduct beyond, beyond bribery and corruption or uh, anti-competitive uh, actions? So I think that's an excellent question, and I'm going to give the very simple answer that I don't know, but it points to a larger dynamic here. I'm really curious to see how this policy is executed in practice, because there are a variety of scenarios that could lead to some really interesting differences in how things get enforced. So Monaco was quick to say that the six-month and 12-month timelines, they could be adjusted as circumstances and facts dictate, and prosecutors could decide that. That's sensible in theory. In practice, I'm wondering, what would that look like? What if you are a highly acquisitive company, and you have been to the dog and pony show, you know how this works, and you have this incident, versus a company that is struggling through its very first acquisition ever? Will the department be a bit more lenient with the non-acquisitive company because they kind of don't know what they're doing versus a highly acquisitive company. Um, what about, like you said, how would this interface with antitrust enforcement um, or various other issues? And uh, while this does apply across the whole Justice Department, it only applies to the Justice Department. It does not apply to civil enforcement agencies. So would that, how much would that really help a company when we've already seen how many FCPA enforcement actions this year from the Securities and Exchange Commission, 
when there wasn't any other companion prosecution from the criminal division. And so, so you know, yourself a lot of your scenarios where this might not be much help because you're still looking at a lot of civil enforcement. Or if you are talking about environmental crimes, any number of state attorneys general not really caring about this, still going to be a violation is. So, like, you know, I've, there are ways that the intention of this policy to some very unusual, very different conclusions. I have no idea what the, they all my but I'm dying to see it in practice because I think you know, I think you're spot on, and you didn't even mention our favorite FTC chairperson, Lena Khan, and her views, uh, what they might be on this, or uh, any of the other uh, agencies. Um, on the whole, would you say this is a positive step forward for compliance? Dag Monaco certainly said that several times throughout the speech, and specifically about this policy empowering compliance officers. Um, it is half of a step forward, uh, but, you know, the whole premise of the Justice Department's enforcement days is a bigger carrot. Yes, we have that. I suppose that's welcome. It's certainly better than a smaller carrot, but a bigger stick for those who disregard the department and still insist on trying to cover up violations. So wondering how that really works in practice. Where is the bigger enforcement for the scoff laws, so um, or do any? How does everybody suddenly reporting CPA enforcement problems and not telling us yet? And we'll find out in a year, maybe. But right now, they are bending over backward to give companies want if voluntarily self-disclose, cooperate in the investigation. Remit, we will, will, you know, we'll try and stretch it for M and A. We'll do it. We'll do it for aggravating factors. We'll give you consideration. I'm waiting for a deputy announce that you know general counsels will get. And um, you know it just seems like there's an awful lot of the cat. But you know, the you're still wondering you know what point will we see somebody who deserves it? And I don't know where that case is yet. And I'd like to close with: uh, Could you give us uh, any sense of the audiences? reaction at the conference or was there discussion? Was it a lot of the questions you and I have been batting back and forth? What was uh, sort of the reception at the conference? Uh, people were probably a lot like what I had just said a moment ago. Generally, people are in favor of this. Nobody is opposed to it. Um, they welcome the underlying dynamic here that it is meant to get compliance officers involved in M&A called more more deeply, and defense officers love that idea. Uh, there's still a lot of about okay, how would this act be executed in practice, especially once we get FCPA context, which I think a lot of compliance officers know. But Tom, you know, how would this work in antitrust? That's a great example that I have no idea how this would work, and I'd be I'd love to know what the antitrust division would say about this. Um, and there were a lot of people kind of conjuring up fact patterns that some unusual conclusion. How would this actually work? Would they give uh, somebody, you know, a very favorable treat if it's an antitrust violation? What if the report its violations 
before the deal closes. And you, the compliance officer at the parent company, you don't get to report it. Like, how would that actually work in practice? What does that mean? No, yeah, I think with time we can get that out, but we're still um, are just curious about, okay, enforcement settlement document that puts this, what would that look like? And because so many different facts could lead to so many different settlements, we're all kind of waiting for a bunch of different enforcement actions before we fully understand the policy. Well, I think that's a good place uh, for us to end this episode. I can't wait to see what next week brings. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. We've linked to Matt's blog posts on this topic in the show notes. I hope you will check out the blog post for more information. I also hope you will listen to some of the new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network. We premiered a podcast uh, with Richard Blundell on sustainability, the business opportunity of the 21st century, Fox on podcasting, where I take a meta look at podcasting and compliance and AI. We are also developing some additional new shows, which will premiere in July. It's quite an exciting time on the Compliance Podcast Network. If you'd like to be a part of the Compliance Podcast Network, please give me a shout. I'm available at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.